0: As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverseimpact.
2: Hello and welcome to another episode of The Mark Moss Show. We're always talking about the decentralized revolution, the way the world is changing. And of course you knew that. You know I like to bring to you some education to help change the way you think about money. Some of the latest breaking news headlines and some interesting guests. And I have a returning guest, one of your favorites, one of my friends, Joe Consorti. He helps me out with some research on my YouTube videos. If you're watching those on my main YouTube channel, Mark Moss, and I have him back. Joe, thanks for joining me today. Absolutely. Good to chat with you again, Mark. Yeah, man. I always love talking to you. You're a wealth of information you know, um, so I kind of want to run through where we're at, you know, we're in this kind of weird situation. Um, and I want to, I want to, I want to spend some time digging into that. Um, kind of like where we're at and where kind of we're going. I, I, I got to spend some time with, uh, with Nick Batia from your team out in Austin last week and and talk to him. So we'll see, see how much you line up with him, but let's start kind of at the top. And what I want to talk about is, um, the big news that, I think, I think is bigger than some people think for some reasons. And that's the, the kind of the slap across the face, maybe that, SE, that the SEC got um, from the judge or the unanimous decision from the judges. And, um, you know, on one hand, it opens up the door for potential ETFs. But also, it also shows like a string of incidents where the SEC is actually kind of getting put back into their place as well. So I think there's kind of two things going on. Uh, how are you reading that?
3: Yeah, so this is uh, kind of a landmark decision, um, even though it may not seem like it right now. Uh, so essentially what happened was that Grayscale's GBTC, this fund, this it's been a closed-end trust. Um, now, that means there are much higher fees, and not all investors can participate in this. And Grayscale has been petitioning to turn that into an ETF, an exchange-traded fund, which has far lower fees uh, and is far more open for all of that institutional capital to get spot one-to-one exposure to Bitcoin. Now, the SEC blocked Grayscale's conversion uh, from a closed-end trust to a spot ETF, and Grayscale, in response, sued the SEC. Now, what has happened is a court has ruled in favor of of grayscale. Uh, So essentially, they won their lawsuit against the SEC, where the SEC was blocking that conversion. Um, And they cited it being arbitrary and capricious, because there are several Bitcoin futures ETFs that have already been approved. So institutional players are allowed to gain futures uh, exposure to Bitcoin, but not spot exposure, which is Uh, less leverage and arguably more safe. And so the court ruled in favor of Grayscale, which is sensible. um, And it's a landmark case because now the SEC is is backed into a corner. Certainly, there are probably more tricks up its sleeve that it can use to delay and uh, create other grounds to deny spot ETF applications. But now there's precedent that the SEC needs to take spot ETF applications seriously, which could be huge for uh, institutional-sized inflows into Bitcoin. Um, now there is a 75% chance, per Bloomberg analysts, that uh, GBTC or other spot ETFs for Bitcoin get made in the United States before the end of the year, and a 95% chance that it happens before the end of 2024. So right now the highest likelihood that we get a spot ETF on the market as there ever has been.
2: Yeah. Now, I'm just going to admit to everybody listening that I'm not an English major. And uh, I didn't really know what that word capricious really meant. So I had to go look that up earlier. (laughs) But, um, you know, when I think about this, uh, it it, it fits it kind of perfectly because the the line of thinking has been that um, the SEC has approved Bitcoin for futures, which are Uh, But they haven't um, approved it for spot. And so the difference is a spot ETF would actually buy the physical or it's digital, but whatever (laughs) they'd buy the asset for the fund as opposed to futures are just betting on the price. And correct me if I'm wrong, but basically the ruling of the SEC has basically said that um, because we don't know how much fraud may or may not be out there in, this, in the system, in, uh, manipulation, you know, who knows what Binance is doing with wash trading, et cetera. Since we don't know if that price is real, we don't want to allow the spot. But my thought process is what difference does it make? Whether you're trading on spot or on the futures, you're still trading off of the price. And that seems like that's sort of what the judge had said.
3: Right Exactly. you know it, it essentially the, the futures vehicle is just a vehicle that trades off of the price of spot Bitcoin. And so if the worry from the SEC, which is the reason they denied the spot ETF application, was that the price would be manipulated, then by that logic, there should be no futures ETFs, but there already are. And so the, the district court judge was able to highlight that and cite that as the main reason and correctly, in my view, is the reason that denying the spot ETF was uh was a was a a bad move considering what they had done before by approving the futures ETF.
2: Yeah. So yeah, so that's what I liked about that. And and again, like I said, it's even bigger than that in a sense where like it kind of shows a string where maybe the SEC is kind of get put back in their place. So we'll see. Now, before we started uh, recording, you said that, uh, you know, per Joe Calasari, who's also on your team, I believe, um, that... Maybe if the SEC really doesn't want to lose, they might have another trick up their sleeve. I want to ask about that. But before before we even answer that, um, they can still go and appeal, which I think they're going to do. Um, so they can still go and appeal this. But then I think if they lose that appeal, then they have like another nuclear weapon, I think you're saying?
3: Yeah, essentially. So what Joe Carlos Are highlighted was that um, essentially like last ditch effort, the, the thing that they can do um, is that they go back and they retract their ruling Uh, the SEC, that is, they can retract their their approval of uh, futures ETFs. Um, Essentially, this is the way that they could play hardball with Grayscale and really deny spot ETFs from coming to the market at least for uh, several more years. By retroactively denying these prior applications for futures ETFs, even though they're already trading, even though they're already, uh, you know, tens of millions of dollars worth of liquidity flowing through these instruments, the SEC can essentially retroactively deny the these futures ETFs, thereby um, stripping away the reason that the court um, uh, gave Grayscale the win here, right? So, in so many words, this is the SEC's way of playing hardball, um, is by making it so the legal precedent for why there should be spot ETFs, they can they can basically re- retroactively remove that and make it uh, all the more harder for these companies like Grayscale to find a way to get these things approved. Now, this is where we dip into opinion here, so take it for what it's worth. But Joe, why would they want to do that? Why would they want to do that? Well, for whatever reason, uh, whether it's Gary we Gensler don't, We don't we don't know, right? This is just, just a guess, but why why would they want to? Exactly. Yeah. Um totally uh, a lot of conjecture here, but in my opinion, um they they see players like Binance and they're worried that a lot of the uh big a lot of Bitcoin's price is propped up on fraud. Um you know, whether it's uh whether it's illegal wash trading, whether it's um uh, you know, some other measure the SEC, if they're being honest, they're probably they're they're worried that these large exchanges that service Bitcoin, that service the spot Bitcoin price, um, are fraudulent, right? That's that's the A side reason, and the B side reason is there may be some entities, whether it's at the government, the Federal Reserve, some other sh- shadowy lurking entity. Um, that has to do with the United States government or the Federal Reserve that is whispering in the SEC's ear, um, basically telling them to uh, you know, not approve this at all costs. Now, why there would be some kind of institution that doesn't want uh, capital allocators in the United States to be able to allocate to Bitcoin? It's anybody's guess, right? But considering that there are Tens of trillions of dollars worth of US treasuries that are getting issued over the next decade, Um, you know, 55 billion or 50 billion worth of new debt that's coming online every single day. Um, To my eyes, the Treasury, the US government, the Fed, they probably want uh, capital allocators to be buying those. So interest rates don't send through the stratosphere and the US government can fund itself instead of Bitcoin. So that could also yeah. be a reason. But of course, just conjecture,
2: just conjecture. Sure, well, I would go for option two if I was gonna put my base case. And the reason why is because I mean, come on, they're concerned about potentially wash trading and the price being propped up, sort of like how JP Morgan traders just went to jail for manipulating the gold price. Like we see prices of assets are manipulated all the time across Mm -hmm. all uh, different types of asset classes, across all types of spectrums, notorious short sellers who seed news articles to like bring, you know, bring the price of price, you know, stock prices down, things like that. So that just seems like the least likely that's obviously what they're saying. I just think that's the least likely I would go for uh, door number two if I was going to choose. But talking about Bitcoin and this ETF, I, I think there's a bigger picture at play. And I'm curious your take, if you really think um, that maybe Bitcoin is kind of taking a, a backseat to the bigger macro economic picture. Um, and so I want to dig into that. But before we do, if you're just tuned in, you're listening to The Mark Moss Show sitting down with Joe Consorti talking about the macroeconomic landscape in the United States and for the world and maybe where that drags Bitcoin. So we're going to cover all that more, but we're gonna take a quick break. So don't go away. We'll be right back. We'll be back in a second. Don't go away.
0: BP added more than $70 billion to the US economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California, and Starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico, it's and not or see what doing both means for energy nationwide at BP.com slash investing in America. It's that time
2: of year again. The U.S. Mint is making the new 2024 American Silver Eagle and American Gold Eagle coins, and there's no better time to buy than now. Gold rose 23% in the past 13 months, and silver's up 27%. Plus, they're both still climbing. Get the newest gold and silver coins of the year from my trusted friends at Universal Coin and Bullion by calling 1-800-UCB-GOLD. Their company president, Dr. Mike Fulgens, is America's gold expert, and he recently met with financial guru Steve Forbes to discuss trends in precious metals. And both experts agree that gold could hit 2,500 an ounce in 2024. That's nearly a 25% gain from today's price per ounce. If you want to make a sound money investment, then add gold and silver to your portfolio now and keep adding as part of your regular investment strategy. Gold's been used as money for over 2,500 years. Call Universal Coin and Bullion at 1-800-UCB-GOLD. That's 1-800-UCB-GOLD. Or check out universalcoin.com
1: That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply.
2: All right, welcome back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Mark Moss Show. I'm sitting down with Joe Consorti, and we're talking about about Bitcoin and and this ETF and the SEC decision. And now I want to ask you, Joe, do you still think at this point Bitcoin is pretty tied into sort of the global macroeconomic picture? And that's really in the driver's seat of what's going on?
3: I think so. I think it's totally beholden to the macro picture. Uh, Obviously, you see these pumps and dumps here and there off of Bitcoin-centric news. But at the end of the day, Bitcoin is a macro asset, and it's a macro asset that's Really, very, very tiny, and therefore it gets thrown around uh, in the waves of this big macro ocean of liquidity. Um, the reason I feel so comfortable saying this is because um, the price of money is at an all time high. Well, not an all time high, an all time high for my lifetime, certainly, um, but at the very least a decade, if not multi decade high. Um, you know, money has never been so expensive, and also. Um, the rate of contraction of money supply uh, is at its deepest uh, contraction since the early stages of the Great Depression. So if you think about it that way, if you think of Bitcoin as this asset that's meant to absorb all of this excess liquidity, but all of a sudden that excess liquidity is being drained like an abscess, then Bitcoin really doesn't have much of a reason to to skyrocket into the stratosphere. So from a macro perspective, um, I think it's really influencing Bitcoin heavily to the downside. Those are the headwinds facing Bitcoin. Whereas things like ETF approval, um, those Bitcoin native aspects, as well as Bitcoin supply schedule, the amount of Bitcoin being issued, getting cut in half, that eventually will play a positive role in Bitcoin's price action. But I think those negative forces of money supply contraction and interest rates are really what are pushing Bitcoin down.
2: Now, um, I know, you know, you, you pay attention to liquidity. And I think maybe you tweeted out yesterday or day before about um, just how liquidity is retreating kind of to the point you said sort of at the fastest rate in history. Um, and, and that that is true. Uh, but at the same time, we still have a lot of liquidity in the system. Uh, because we had, you know, between the fed and, uh, between fiscal and monetary inflation, we had about 11 trillion pumped into the system in about two years. And so that's still sort of sitting there. It seems like, and that would be my base case as to why equities are holding up so strong in the face of this rampant, um, you know, rate increase while at the same time, the bond market is telling us there's certain danger coming, but equities are still raising new all time highs. Um, first of all, if you can want to comment on that, and then second of all, um, if 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 that if the answer is yes, you think maybe that could be part of it. Then why has Bitcoin sold off so much while equities have been able to continue to rally? I
3: think that is part of it. Um, if you look at it from obviously, we talk about growth. And we talk about the rate of change, right? M2's rate of change is its deepest negative in almost 100 years. OK, great. But to your point, this is just a mean reversion, right? There's a, there's a rate that the money supply goes up. It goes up and to the right. But then all of a sudden in 2020, there was this huge bazooka of money that was blasted into the system, and it went like this. So now the process we're going through right now is just a reversion down back to that historical rate of growth. And so for that reason um that could be the reason that there is still ample liquidity in the system and you haven't seen a huge explosion in things like uh, major equity indexes uh just yet um and uh as for how that's impacting bitcoin Uh, I think it just comes down to a behavioral shift in investors following that monetary bazooka. Um, I think there was a great deal of hysteria that came into the Bitcoin market um, during 2020, 2021, and of course into 2022. Um, And I do think a lot of that hysteria is moving away. Um, one, th- the reason I think the, this, uh, this de-risking came for Bitcoin first prior to equities is because, like I said, it's higher beta, a lot more leverage in Bitcoin. Um, right now, leverage is propping up the market more than it ever has, um, uh, over spot buying, but also it's very illiquid, right? Compared to things like the S and P 500. So as investors de-risk, uh, I have a feeling. Because spot buying is virtually non-existent in Bitcoin right now, and it's a high-risk asset, they move uh, the the liquidity moves from that asset first, whereas the S&P 500 is still able to be supported, particularly on strong, relatively strong earnings growth over the last couple of quarters. Earnings have really done well. And so equities are still being supported. I think the tide will turn there based off two factors. One, really attractive rates. Um, I may think the US treasuring uh, with the amount of debt that it's issuing is super irresponsible. But the reality is investors love when there's higher and higher yielding debt. And so as debt continues to be attractive, investors will move away from equities. But I think the nail in the coffin for the S&P 500, eventually, which will lead it to fall of Bitcoin, is when earnings start to disappear point. And for now, um, that's not going to happen until corporate debt has to roll over, which hundreds of billions of dollars worth of corporate debt is maturing the end of this year, but primarily 2024 and 2025. Those are the two years to watch where earnings really start to deteriorate and the S&P 500 snaps back to reality. Could happen before that, could happen during that, uh, but I think eventually the S&P 500 will follow Bitcoin and its de-risking pattern here.
2: Yeah, I love that uh, point that you brought in the beginning about uh, the M2 supply. While it is falling uh, at the fastest rate in 100 years, to your point, um, it's falling back to the mean. It was, it was sort of like um, I was talking about before, uh, previously, not today, but on another video. But oil prices and all these headlines: oil prices are plunging, they're plunging, they're plunging. Yeah, they plunged all the way back to where they were pre the little spike that we had, you know, during the, the war with Russia broke out. And so it's like important to understand the direction and the speed, but also sort of understand where that mean average as well. I guess that's what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. So liquidity is plunging, but it's still pretty high, uh, which is why stocks are still doing pretty good. Now, a lot of it has to do with, um, to to your point, like the direction that we're going. And so uh, all eyes are on Jerome Powell, head of the Fed, trying to tell us where the price of this money is going to go, where it's going to end up. They had the meeting last week in Wyoming. Um, It seemed to me it was uh, what we call Fed speak a lot of kind of talking out of both sides of your mouth, like, Hey, we're kind of waiting and watching. We could do more if we need to, but we don't know if we will cause we have to be prepared for either way. Um, is that sort of what you took out of it? Do you think it was sort of
3: like evenly hawkish and dovish at the same time? It is. Ultimately, the Fed needs to straddle that line between not spooking the markets and creating this, you know, uh, the, the pushing the wealth effect in the other but, direction. But a
2: lot of times they're trying to really project out in advance what they're going yeah. to do, because they don't want to spook, they, to your point, they don't want to spook the markets. So typically, they say like, before they started raising rates, they announced several months before they were going to do it before they did. So sometimes they're trying to kind of lead you. So mm-hmm. are they leading this into neutral
3: territory? <laughs> It seems like it. Um, The Fed does what's called forward guidance, which exactly like you said, they don't want to spook the markets. And so they kind of tell you ahead of time exactly what they're going to do. It's all about setting expectations and keeping to them. And uh, they're kind of setting the expectations for that. They're going to be on hold. Right. And the reason being, Jerome Powell said, as is often the case, we are navigating by the stars under cloudy skies. That was a quote from him. That's kind of disconcerting from the guy who's setting the price of money um, for the entire United States and all of U.S. dollar capital markets. But essentially what he's saying is that the Fed has two tools. Okay, it has interest rate setting and it has its balance sheet right? It can influence rates and it can buy stuff with his balance sheet or the money printer, right? And these two tools, both of them work with long and variable lags. It's a phrase that Jerome Powell has said multiple times, um, which tend to be about 18 months or longer. And so now that we're about 18 months away from the Fed's first rate hike, these lags are finally trickling down from the Fed's monetary gavel to actually tightening financial conditions. And so when he says we're navigating by the stars under cloudy skies, essentially he's saying, yeah, we were we're using this business data, these tools, but now we're entering into a realm of uncertainty. Yeah, so crazy. now that the lags are finally hitting, we're very uncertain about the outlook. And so he's kind of, he's setting the expectation that we're now entering the period where things are gonna start to get hairy. Um, and Powell just said it in a very overly poetic way. So yeah. that's what I think I got out of Jackson Hole. Reading the tea leaves. If
2: you're just tuning in, you listening to the Mark Moss Show. I'm sitting down with Joe Consorti talking about the state of the Fed, the economy, the markets, and where we're going. I gotta take a quick break. We'll be back with more in a minute. Don't go away.
0: BP added more than $70 billion to the US economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's that time of year
2: again. The U.S. Mint is making the new 2024 American Silver Eagle and American Gold Eagle coins, and there's no better time to buy than now. Gold rose 23% in the past 13 months and silver's up 27%. Plus, they're both still climbing. Get the newest gold and silver coins of the year from my trusted friends at Universal Coin and Bullion by calling 1-800-UCB-GOLD. Their company president, Dr. Mike Fulgens, is America's gold expert, and he recently met with financial guru Steve Forbes to discuss trends in precious metals, and both experts agree that gold could hit 2500 an ounce in 2024. That's nearly a 25% and gain from today's price per ounce if you want to make a sound money investment then add gold and silver to your portfolio now and keep adding as part of your regular investment strategy gold's been used as money for over 2500 years call universal coin and bullion at 1-800-UCB-GOLD that's 1-800-UCB-GOLD or check out universalcoin.com
1: mark moss as a person with a very deep voice i'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns
2: All right, welcome back. If you just tuned in, you're listening to the Mark Moss Show. I'm sitting down with Joe Consorti from The Bitcoin Lair. Uh, they put out amazing data every single day. There's a free newsletter and a paid newsletter. Check that out. We'll put it in the show notes down below, The Bitcoin Layer. Uh, but Joe, back to where we were talking about before, we were talking about uh, this meeting that the, that the Fed had last week. And uh, he wants to read the tea leaves. He wants to read the stars. Uh, he's an astrologer now, I guess. Um, tell me why the um, you know, you talk a lot about treasury yields. The, the, the treasury is the sophisticated market, right? Um, why are the two and 10 so important for us to watch, the two year yield and the 10 year yield? And what are they telling us?
3: Right. So the two year and the 10 year yield are two of two uh, interest rates within the US treasury market. Now, the US treasury market is so important because almost every major financial institution, trading country, uh, company, All around the world, they hold them. And so they're really, really important. And because they're held by everybody, they have all this liquidity, then they are used as a benchmark rate um, for the global economy, right? So the two-year yield is used for borrowers who are borrowing on like a really short time frame. Um, whereas the 10-year yield is used for borrowers who are borrowing on a very long time frame. Um, so for example, business loans, right? Business loans are often written at a spread to the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield. Um, and two-year, the two-year yield is so important because it really influences the rate that financial institutions can get. Um, uh, they have to pay out on their deposits, and they also uh, can get at short-term money facilities if they park their money risk-free elsewhere. And so these two rates really impact the price of lending and the amount of lending that happens here in the United States and in the global economy at large. So both of them are very important for global growth. And both of them, by the same token, are very important for inflation. Um, because obviously, you know, uh, when, when interest rates are very low, people can borrow cheaply, um, Chances are they're going to go out. They're going to spend that money they borrow, pushes price inflation up. But the reverse of that, the flip side of that, um, is when interest rates are very high. Um, chances are yeah, a lot of a lot higher quality borrowing is going to happen, and a lot less borrowing is going to happen, right? Um, and so the the reason that watching two of these th- these two things so uh, so closely is pretty important. Um, particularly the 10-year yield, is because the 10-year yield is the most used benchmark rate for the global economy. Um, And the 10-year yield for the last five years, five, six years, have been underneath the rate of inflation. It has been negative, right? So said differently, um, uh, uh, you can borrow, right, essentially at a negative rate. And so this has caused all this cheap borrowing to proliferate around the world, because if you're not borrowing, you're losing money, right? In a very backwards way. That's what negative interest rates do. Um, and so that's what's happened for the last five years. But now um, we have the highest real rates in 15 years. Still technically not above uh, the, or, or just peaking their head above, rather, the inflation rate. But the highest real rates in 10 years, uh, 15 years, rather. And that's pretty substantial, right? If you go all the way back to 2007, 2008, um, that's when. Uh, that's with the last time that we had the uh, the level of real rates that we have now. And so that's going to really restrict the amount of borrowing that happens here in the United States and the global economy. Um, and when businesses can borrow, they have to borrow less. Uh, they have to borrow at a higher rate. That means they scale back their operations. Um, they turn less profitable. Eventually, they have to fire people. And so this is very significant because it's sort of a very, it's a slow motion stranglehold on global growth. And that's what's happening right now. Um, with, uh, with particularly the 10-year yield, but also the two-year yield. So that's why they're so key to watch and so key to understand that these rates being at their highest level uh, is a big headwind for, for global economic activity.
2: So I'm seeing two different conflicting messages. So one, not from you, but from the market. So one, we're clearly in a bull market, technically above 20%. Uh, we're in a bull market um, until otherwise, I mean, that's that's kind of the way I see it, uh, kind of to the point we had all this liquidity put into the system, uh, the markets went up. Um, I think another thing that happened is when the banks fell into uh, problems, the Fed jumped in with the BTFP, which basically signaled the Fed put was in place. We also saw the Fed jump and open up liquidity lines with lots of other countries, signaling the Fed put is in place um, and still active. Um, we're strongly in bull market territory, right? NASDAQ's up 25%, S&P's up 16%, Dow Jones up 9%, just since March of 2023 when the banking crisis happened. So that's bull market. I saw on the monthly MACD, it issued a buy signal, which historically is very strong. It's happened three times, uh, lows of 2019, 2016, and the COVID 2020 lows. And we're below the 200 day moving average. So those are like bicycles in the market. Now the treasuries show a different picture and they show that recession's coming, right? So like we have this like contradictory picture, these conflicting signals. Um, the S&P, I mean, about 57% of the markets waiting are in an uptrend, which is like pretty big deal. But like I said, the the, the treasury market is, is really bad. Now, when the... Um, When we saw last week, we're trying to understand like what investors concerns are. And like, are they more concerned about inflation or deflation? Seems like kind of like two sides that we're looking at. And when we saw the um, we saw the treasuries drop. Then stocks took another bounce higher. So it seems like they're still sort of in this risk on um, worried about inflation view. How do you reconcile that contradictory view of what the markets are telling us and what the um, treasury telling us?
3: Yeah, it's certainly interesting. I mean, treasuries are, are really signaling by all accounts recessions in the way. If you look at um, both of the bigger, uh, the more uh, relevant yield curves, um, the difference between the 10-year and the 2-year Treasury yield, and the difference between the 10-year and the 3-month Treasury yield, both are extremely inverted. and That shouldn't happen. That means uh, the price of borrowing is higher than the price that you can lend at, right? And of course, for banks that borrow short and lend long, that destroys their whole scheme. Um, and when the yield curve inverts, that really means recession is on the way because it means that credit growth is uh, is about to go in the in this in the, in the toilet um, as banks lend out far less money because the way that they do business doesn't work anymore. Um, and so the the treasury market, what the treasury market is saying, totally contradicting the way that equities are behaving. Equities are ripping, right? Just like you said, bull market bull market until proven otherwise. Nobody looking back uh, at the start of this year, at the end of last year, would have predicted that the S&P 500 would be up and threatening new highs, no, nor would they predict that the NASDAQ would be doing the same. And so in well, my do I don't know if that's true, Joe, because uh, shout out
2: to uh, Nick over at your team. I had him on last fall. And he said his base case was the Fed. We don't have a big crash coming, and, we, and the Fed kind of pulls this off. Um, I made some videos also, kind of saying the same thing. So, uh, shout out to Nick, and uh, uh, maybe he didn't. He didn't say new all-time highs, but he said that he didn't. His base case was not a big crash coming, and so that's sort of where we're at. But anyway, keep going.
3: Phenomenal, yeah. So your base case, Nick's base case, and when I say nobody, I mean myself. I certainly was not predicting um, that that uh, equities would be behaving this way. So. Essentially, you know what we're seeing is is totally diverging paths between uh, what rates are saying and what equities are doing. And in my opinion, it boils down to uh, uh, at least part of it. I think the lion's share of it has to do with the way that companies refinanced their debt in 2020 and 2021, and even the, the beginning of 2022, when rates were still held so artificially low. There were so they're, a lot not of being, they're not
2: being impacted by these rate increases yet.
3: That's right, exactly. They were able to refi lower, just like people who, just like my you know, uh, my, my father, who was able to refi his mortgage at 2.5%, caught the absolute bottom. He's unaffected by these these changes in mortgage rates, and, and the same thing uh, for corporate borrowers. They refied when rates were basically zero after the Fed shot them down to zero post-COVID, and so they're unaffected by these rate hikes, and so it becomes a question of when does this corporate debt mature? that's when we really start to see underperformance and so frankly the yield curve can remain inverted without uninverting yields can stay right where they are before we see any kind of corporate weakness um, and until until then uh, rates can continue signaling recession and equities can still doing uh, uh, continue doing well it all boils down to to companies being able to who who refinance much lower
2: yeah. Yeah. Great, great summary. I want to dig into that a little bit more. I have some questions of my own. Uh, I got to take a quick break. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Mark Moss show. I'm sitting down with my friend, Joe Consorti. Uh, he helps me out a lot. He also is part of the Bitcoin layer. You should definitely check that out. They put out uh, daily news. If you want to get your finger on the pulse of the market, the Bitcoin layer, Uh, I got to take a very quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about, um, timing uh the, the see if the, see if our crystal balls are clear at all we'll talk about that in a minute and how we can kind of reconcile this and move forward with it we'll be back with more in a minute don't go away be right back
0: across america bp supports more than two hundred seventy-five thousand jobs to keep energy flowing jobs like building grid scale solar energy in ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in texas it's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
2: It's that time of year again. The U.S. Mint is making the new 2024 American Silver Eagle and American Gold Eagle coins, and there's no better time to buy than now. Gold rose 23% in the past 13 months and silver's up 27%. Plus, they're both still climbing. Get the newest gold and silver coins of the year from my trusted friends at Universal Coin and Bullion by calling 1-800-UCB-GOLD. Their company president, Dr. Mike Fulgens, is America's gold expert, and he recently met with financial guru Steve Forbes to discuss trends in precious metals, and both experts agree that gold could hit 2,500 an ounce in 2024. That's nearly a 25% gain from today's price per ounce. If you want to make a sound money investment, then add gold and silver to your portfolio now and keep adding as part of your regular investment strategy. Gold's been used as money for over 2,500 years. Call Universal Coin and Bullion at 1-800-UCB-GOLD. That's 1-800-UCB-GOLD. Or check out universalcoin.com slash Mark Moss. All right. Welcome back. If you just tuned in, you're listening to the Mark Moss show. I'm sitting down with Joe Consorti. He's an analyst with the Bitcoin layer with amazing macro research. Check him out the Bitcoin layer. Um, So Joe, we are talking about um, reconciling the, the markets ripping to new all time highs and being or close to and being in a bull market. And then Treasury showing that recession is coming. And the one thing that I always say over and over and over again, every time I'm at a conference, whatever is like, we may hear con- conflicting views, and the question I think that always clarifies that is, what is the time frame we're talking about? And so you kind of su- summarized that at the last, before I took the break, and you said, um, and that, that was the point I was going to bring up, but you said it, but that yield curves signal a recession is coming every time. But yield curves can stay inverted for a really long time, and they could even become more inverted than they are now. And so that is the question. So it's like sort of like the the treasuries, the markets are ripping to new all-time highs on their way to new all-time highs while the treasury is signaling recession. But that recession could be one, two, three, five, 10 years out. Now, one of the things that you're saying is that, um, you know, the corporate, you know, homeowners aren't really affected. They locked in low rates. Uh, Corporations aren't as affected because they locked in low rates. But when those have to start being rolled over, that could be a big problem. And so that kind of gives us a little bit of view into when we can see when treasuries have to be rolled over, when bonds have to be rolled over, corporate bonds have to be rolled over. But then we also have to think that, um, you know, man, Joe, I uh, became a gold bug in 2008. I realized it was fiat money that was the problem. Uh, That's when I really got super interested in all this Fed stuff. And, um, you know, I had been a real estate guy. And, um, I got just, you know, shellacked in 2008 and, you know, I wanted to get back in and start building again. And, and, and around 2013, 2014, I had enough money to do it. And I was kind of wanting to do it. I I just, I enjoy it, but I kept thinking that the market was going to crash. It was going to crash. It was going to crash. They didn't fix anything after 2008. Uh, you know, the bank, it's it's even a bigger problem than it is today. I don't want to get in the same problem that I was in before. So it's going to crash, going to crash. And here we are. And what I've come to learn after this uh, time is that it's really hard not to underestimate the tricks that the Fed has up their sleeve. So we have seen the Feds, you know, the commercial real estate market is a disaster, the bonds, et cetera, there. But we've seen the Fed just take mortgage-backed securities and just put them on their balance sheet. And so why wouldn't they do that again? We've seen the Fed buy corporate bonds. Why wouldn't they just do that again?
3: How do you think about that? Just like you said, the yield curve can remain inverted uh, for a very long time year or several years and nothing can happen. But in the lead up to 2008, the yield curve uh, was inverted in uh, September or July of 2006 and it didn't uninvert until September of 2007. So these things can stay inverted for a long time, and right now we, we're not even approaching uh, the one year mark. Uh, We're we're coming up on it in a couple of months of the yield curve being inverted. This can stay the case for a while and until uh, firms actually have to refinance and a recession begins rearing its head, um, which is really where the alpha is. The the alpha is when is this going to happen? There's $6.3 trillion worth of uh, outstanding corporate bonds that are maturing now uh, through this time in 2025. Uh, and so it becomes a matter of at what point does the tide shift to those mature, majority of firms having to downsize, lay people off, or do they have cash piles uh, uh, on hand that can that can stave off a lot of this uh, this necessary downsizing? And then it becomes a question of okay, if that does happen, and if commercial real estate, which is its whole in a whole manner of. Uh, you know, uh, a really awful situation. Record high vacancies in metro and non-metro areas. Um, record high delinquencies. Um, uh, over sixty percent of the past due loans this year are unpaid, or the, the the commercial real estate loans that were set to be paid this year are unpaid. It becomes a matter of what what's the Fed gonna do? Just like you said, there's precedent before that the Fed will just buy these distressed assets. They've bought mortgage-backed securities before, when the residential real estate market um, was uh, was going up in smoke and people were defaulting back in 2008, 2009, all the way through 2013. And then they bought corporate bonds before, too. They did it in 2000, 2001. They did it during the great financial crisis. And now uh, they cre- they set up a facility, Bank Term Funding Program, just another acronym for can-kicking, where they, uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a loan facility, yeah. right? loan facility that's temporary, temporary, probably sure. gonna be permanent, um, where banks who incurred all these losses on their treasury holdings because of the Fed's interest rate hikes can bring their distressed assets, their treasuries to the Fed and receive one dollar. So these treasuries went from a dollar to 60 cents. They bring them to the Fed, they get one dollar in return, wipe away their losses. Chances are, I think a lot of those, a lot of similar facilities are going to get set up for commercial real estate loans that go sour for corporate bonds that go sour if a market is deep and liquid enough to the point that if it's being used as collateral and um the it's devaluation right like corporate like commercial real estate like corporate bonds that threatens the stability of the global financial system the fed's just going to make a facility for it and uh, make all those losses completely go away just like it did with us treasuries yeah uh, when I was at the conference uh, this
2: last week, I was with uh, Preston Pish and Tour de Mister. and uh, Tour said um, what he's doing now is he's putting all his charts and he's using the denominator instead of USD as a CRB commodities, and if you look at the S and P priced in CRB, it shows a completely different picture. The market has crashed; it has not come back near all time highs. Um, You can, Preston said, you know, he likes to do it divided by the M2. And so you can also price it, you know, by M2 as well. Uh, And you'll see that we're actually still down from the year 2000, which is pretty interesting. So um, it's important to, you know, get something to measure in that's not as manipulated. Um, I got about two minutes left. I'm just curious. um, So, Taking this into consideration that we've unpacked it um, and and sort of st- on this point where um, we could stay inverted for another year and still be within norms or six months and even longer. I mean, we're in uncharted territory. They could keep buying it down. They're already engaged in some sort of manipulation anyway. Um, and they could set up even more funding programs like BTFP. Um, you you know, you know, you're Peter Schiff or you're Harry Dent Jr. Uh, or Mike Malone, and you know the system's going to crash. And I think we can all say that with certainty, but it could be one year or a hundred years, uh, probably not a hundred, but uh, it could be, you know, one or five or whatever. So, so how do you move forward in the face of that? You, you, you take it sort of day by day as it is, or, you know, do you sit out and just wait
3: for the inevitable crash to happen? Right, I think there are a couple things that people can begin to do and it's it's all really a process. I think, you know, dumping one's net worth into one thing or another thing isn't savvy, but I think recognizing the trend and identifying where we are, identifying the risk factors and where we're going to be, then if you begin scaling into certain positions now because you recognize where we're going to be, you know, it's it's much more fruitful than just sitting on your hands. And so I think given the fact that real rates are at 15-year highs, um, I think that the way that you play this is by scaling into U.S. Treasuries, both on the front end and the long end, uh, where you're getting more duration. Um, ultimately, with this huge deluge of issuance from the Treasury, five billion dollars a day in new issuance um, through you know over the next decade, completely there is no debt ceiling anymore. With that heightened issuance comes higher and higher yields, and eventually. It's going to be a point at which investor capital, those yields are just too damn attractive, and it sucks capital away from other assets, and it sucks capital away from those risk a- risk assets, right? Whether it's huge and liquid things like NASDAQ and the S P 500 or things like Bitcoin, which we've already seen suffer. And so I think the way that you play this is by recognizing eventually there's going to be a downturn. The whole system probably isn't going to collapse because the Fed won't allow it. It has too many tools in its chest and too many new ones that it can create at the drop of a hat. It won't allow a recession to happen, a major global recession. But I think some kind of economic downturn is undeniable, right? Um, And I feel that as investors begin to recognize that as yields become too attractive, this de-risking impulse will completely subsume market liquidity. And people will will flood into those uh, those more safe haven assets. So I think things like monetary metals like gold that are proven risk-off, um, I think things like U.S. treasuries, uh, certain high-grade corporate bonds, those are more marginally attractive now than they were. So those are the things I think are savvy to scale into. I don't think having a position in the S&P 500 is bad, because like I said, um, this phase of bond saying one thing different from stocks that can go on for a while until the reality of corporate maturity um, comes due. So I still think having a position in risk indices is, is good. But I think it's about time for people to start considering scaling out and moving into to risk off assets as well.
2: Yeah, great, great, great breakdown. That's what we got for you today. Thanks so much for listening. Give me a shout out on social media. Let me know what you think. Until next time. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury.